Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. If you need to use your table of contents, that is completely appropriate. Most Christians have never read the book of Habakkuk. It is a tiny book right in the kind of the end of the Old Testament. There are 12 prophets there that we call minor prophets. Not, they're not called minor because, of their, because they're less important. They're called minor because they're shorter than the other prophets. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the other 12 are the minor prophets. They're much shorter books. Um, Habakkuk, I'm hoping over the next three weeks you're going to really come to appreciate the book of Habakkuk. Um, it is fairly common for Christian kids to graduate high school, go off to college, and end up in something like a freshman philosophy class, usually taught by a professor who's not a Christian, often one who um, l- likes to put doubt on the Christian faith, maybe not a philosophy class. I had this in history class in college, but um, he'll pose a question to the class. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? He'll say, if there's a God in heaven, why do bad things happen? We believe God is all-powerful and all-good. That is, he can do absolutely anything he wishes. He's also completely good. We believe those two truths very strongly. But these classes will say that because of the existence of evil and suffering, God can't be both of those things. He can't be all-powerful and all-good, and evil and suffering still exist. Because if, if, if he was both of those things, he would wipe out evil and suffering. Then they say, maybe he's all-good, but he's not all-powerful. So he would do something about evil and suffering, but he's not able to. That they'll say, maybe that's it. Or maybe he is all-powerful, but he's not good. So he has the power to bring an end to evil and suffering, but he doesn't want to because he's not good. And often an 18-year-old college freshman who grew up in church has never heard of such a thought. Nobody in church ever talked to them about such a thing. And in some churches, even bringing up that question is seen as wrong. So adults immediately hush it up. We don't ask those kinds of questions here. That's doubt. We don't do that. And when that is done, those students are not prepared for such questions, so they have no answer to these professors. And by nature, a college professor is seen as an intellectual and an authority in the realm of knowledge. So the students have two options before them, accept what the professor's saying or be an idiot. They have to pick out of those two. Thus begins the deconstruction of the faith they grew up in. This shouldn't be how it is. Youth in this church should feel free to come to me or any one of you with their questions, and we should be able to offer them some kind of answer. 
It's the biggest reason that um, you, you see in your bulletin, I'm doing what's called an Ask Me Anything night on November 14th. There's a box in the back of question slips. You can write a question about the Christian faith that you have, put it in that box by the end of October. November 14th, I'm going to answer those questions. Um, I, there's an online link to do that as well. Submit some questions. Let's, let's talk about some questions that you have about the Christian faith some things you've always wondered, some things that people in your life are raising to you. Let's talk about those. You're allowed to ask questions. Jesus can withstand any amount of scrutiny, I promise you. But is there really no answer to that question? Is there really no answer to that question? Is it really not possible that God can be both all-powerful and all-good, yet evil and suffering still exist? Is there no way we could ever think of that that could be a possibility? That's the theme of the book of Habakkuk. We're going to spend three weeks on this book. It's three chapters long. We're going to do about a chapter a week. Um, most Christians have never read this book. It's often used as a punchline to a joke. Well, I was reading in Habakkuk the other day. But this book is so important because it asks a lot of questions that people want to ask but are too ashamed to ask. Habakkuk is different than all the other Old Testament prophets in that he hasn't preached to anybody in this book. Most of the prophets, most of what you read in their book is just recording of their sermons. Habakkuk doesn't preach a single sermon. He, this entire book, he's in a conversation with God, the whole book. He's actually in a conversation. He's asking the same question that college professor asked. God, why aren't you doing something about this evil in the world, about all this evil? Why aren't you doing something? And God's going to answer him. So let's see what God says. Habakkuk 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted." Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose, might, whose own might is their God. The nation of Israel had a long and dramatic history. The nation lasted about 430 years from the time King Saul began his um, kingdom in 1021 BC. Um, the nation was destroyed completely in the 500s, so about 430 years is how long they last. Saul, if you remember, was a disobedient king, so God chose David to replace him. David had a really good kingdom until he chose to have an affair with Bathsheba. And even though he repented, his kingdom was never the same. It was a nightmare. Because even if you repent of your sins, there, are still, there still may be consequences on earth for the sins that you committed. 
His son Solomon built the temple, but ended his reign worshiping idols and marrying hundreds of women for political alliances. Solomon's two sons couldn't work out who was going to take over the throne after Solomon, and so they decided, since we can't work this out, let's just break the kingdom up into two. We'll have two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom had all bad kings. You read the book of Kings, and literally every northern kingdom, it's he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians around 722 BC. The southern kingdom's the only thing that remains. They had some good kings, but most of theirs were bad too. One of their good kings, Hezekiah, made a really stupid blunder. Babylonians were visiting, and he took them in and said, hey, let me show you everything we have, all the treasures that Israel has. Come on in. I'll show you all of our treasure. You never do that to foreign kingdoms because then they come and take your stuff. Isaiah told him, you've done a really stupid thing by doing this. What is wrong with you? Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh. Manasseh, 2 Kings 21.9 says, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh's son, this is Hezekiah's grandson, Ammon, 2 Kings 21.22 just says he abandoned the Lord. He took it one step further than Manasseh did. Josiah comes next. You, you probably know Josiah. He finds an old copy of the law of Moses stuffed away in a closet somewhere. You know, they had a church cleaning day. They, they took all the stuff that they didn't need. They stuffed it all back in a closet. One day somebody's cleaning it out. They find a book of the law of Moses and they read it. And Josiah is completely torn. Why are we not doing this stuff? And so he begins to change everything back to the way it's supposed to be in Israel. But then he dies young in battle. He doesn't live to his old age. And none of that stuff that he did, none of the revival that he did sticks because the heart of the nation was still like Manasseh and Ammon because making Christian laws in a nation, though very good for society, does not change godless hearts of that nation. Let that be a um, lesson to us. Laws and government and policies will not change heart. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Following the death of Josiah, there's a couple kings left, but... They are mostly puppets of the Babylonian Empire who came in long ago when Hezekiah made his blunder. Within a couple generations, the nation of Israel was destroyed, and all the citizens were either killed or taken into exile in Babylon. A few of them escaped and lived in surrounding places, but their home was taken from them. Habakkuk is likely a prophet during that time after Josiah dies. Josiah's dead. There's a couple more kings. Babylon is basically taking over Israel. Habakkuk is a prophet in that time. Some of the darkest days his people had ever known. Only a few decades from when the people of Israel would basically be taken back into the slavery they were in in Egypt when Moses led them out. They're basically going to go back to that. And Habakkuk, as you can see, is looking around at Israel, at the Israel he lives in, and it's nothing like what he's read about in the Bible. So he's read about Moses and David and Samuel and, and all these people. He, he's like, this looks nothing like everything that I've read in our history books. Israel has had some nasty days before, but nothing like its current moment. I can imagine he's thinking things are as bad as they could possibly get here. Never say that, though, because it could always end up getting worse after that. Habakkuk just has one of those really honest prayer times. You ever had one of those where where you were actually honest with God about how you're feeling, 
You don't mask it behind holy language. You actually share what's on your heart. God, I do not understand why, what you're doing. I don't understand why you've done this. Why have you let this happen? Everything you have let happen just seems completely wrong. Why are you doing this? You may never pray those kinds of prayers because you think it's offensive to God. Since I've been pastor, I've heard people say multiple times this phrase, I know you're not supposed to ask God why. Since when? Jesus hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? About a quarter of the Psalms are the psalmist saying, God, why? Why? What kind of baloney did you buy into that you weren't allowed to ask God why? In many ways, this is the theme of Habakkuk. He's asking God why. Why, God? If you're, generally, if you're genuinely wondering why, but you don't voice that to God. You're not hiding it from him. He knows what's in your heart. He wants you to be genuine with him. He does not want you to act like you've got it all together. He just wants you to open up and truly express what you're feeling. Be real with him and let him take you as you are and do something with that. Habakkuk looks around at his society and it's a wreck. It's a wreck. Notice the words he uses in verses 2 through 4. Violence, iniquity. Wrong, destruction, strife, contention. He, he says in verse 4, the wicked are ganging up on the righteous. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice does not happen. The wicked gang up on the righteous. This isn't anything like you can imagine. This sort of sounds like one of those post-apocalyptic worlds that you'd see on movies or television. This is like The Walking Dead. There's no law, there's no government, there's no right and wrong, just every man for himself. Kill or be killed. That's the world Habakkuk lives in. We see um, historically what it was like in 2 Kings 21, verses 3 through 7. This is about the time Habakkuk would have prophesied. For he rebuilt the, speaking of Manasseh, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set up in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house... And in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. That's the world Habakkuk is in. That's the world. You've got, verse 3, state-sponsored worship of false gods. The state is sponsoring worship of um, Baal and Asherah. What's that mean? That means the people's tax dollars are going to fund that. You've got verse 4. They worshipped the false gods of other nations. They built altars in the temple to worship other gods. The temple where God dwells, they built altars there to worship other gods. The temple where God dwells, that's a blatant disregard for the one true God. You're worshipping a false god a hundred feet from where, the only, from where the only god that there is lives. It's like a man sleeping with his mistress in his guest room while his wife is asleep alone in her bed in the other room. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God that he didn't smite these people dead the second they brought that wooden elephant into the room. 
Verse 6, we, we know it doesn't say directly, but we know they're worshiping Molech because it says he burned his son as an offering. Statue, understand what, what Molech was. Molech was this god. You've probably heard of it. They, they would make a statue of him out of bronze. His hands would be out like this, and they would heat that statue up to a scalding hot temperature, and they would take newborn children and place them in the hands of that statue right there and, and worship a god as that baby screamed to death until it died. That's worship of Molech. That's what they're doing. They would, they would, the babies would scream and cry until their life left them, and these people would, would praise a foreign deity. Then they practice witchcraft in verse 6. They, they go to fortune tellers and omens and mediums and necromancers. You ever been down Tift Avenue and seen that sign at the house next to Dairy Queen that says palm readings? You see that, and what are your thoughts of that? Well, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody go? Are, are they really making money there? But then the same people who say that will go take Facebook quizzes, and, and those quizzes tell you what combination you are of a vegetable and a Disney princess. And it gives you a little statement, and you're like, oh, it just knows me so well. Look at that. Or, or they'll read their horoscope, or they'll obsess about their Enneagram number. And, and the point is these people are using, are trying to get wisdom and advice from something that is not God for life decisions when they have the God of the universe in the next room over. You don't need a Facebook quiz to find out who you are. God has told you who you are. And finally, verse 7, worship of Asherah. Asherah was the fertility god. You worshiped Asherah by visiting prostitutes. So Manasseh literally turned the temple of God into a brothel. This is all during Manasseh's time. Remember, it's probably been a couple generations since Manasseh was in office when Habakkuk is preaching. Habakkuk's looking at all of this, and he just gets alone in his prayer closet, and he says, God, how long are you going to let this stuff keep going on? How long are you going to let this be here? I've been praying and praying and praying. I've been begging you to destroy all of this evil, and you're doing nothing. How long are you going to wait? Are you going to do anything at all? This is Habakkuk's question. Question. Perhaps that's your question as well when you look at our society. Let's be real honest with some of your thoughts this morning. Maybe you're asking some of the questions that Habakkuk is about our very day and time. God, how much longer are you going to let American society deteriorate? God, we are two years from the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Why have you not rained fire on all the abortion clinics yet? Why not? God, how much longer are you going to let the religion of sex prevail in the United States? We don't have an established religion like Asherah around sex, but we might as well. It's one of the biggest gods of our culture. You are seen as an incomplete human if you've never had sex in the United States culture. It's promoted that sex is the highest form of self-expression, which is just ludicrous. It is believed and celebrated that you can have sex with as many people as you want, no matter their gender, no matter their marital status, no matter how well you know them, and just wait, maybe someday, no matter their age. As long as the other person is consenting, our culture sees no boundaries on sex because it's the God of our culture. God, how much longer are you going to um, let society try to take away parental authority from children? How much longer are you going to let racial extremists wreck the lives of normal people in our country? Be that white supremacists who are psychopaths who, who hate those who are not white? 
or be that Black Lives Matter that claims that every white person is a racist that has metaphorically lynched African-American people. God, how much longer are you going to let millions and millions of people be held captive by the human trafficking industry? How much longer, God? God answers Habakkuk. He answers Habakkuk, verses 5 through 11. We know God begins to talk here because the pronoun changes. Verse 2 through 4, the the person is saying, you, how long are you going to do this? I'm crying out to you. Verses 5 through 11, it changes to I. I am doing this. I am doing a work. Never narrates that God starts talking, but we can kind of gather that's what happens. Habakkuk, he says, I'm not being silent. I'm not ignoring it. I know exactly what I'm doing. Your problem is you can't see the whole timeline. You can't see it. God stands over history. God can see everything on the timeline of history from the creation of Adam all the way to the second coming of Jesus. He knows how every little detail of everything is going to play out, and he's working in the midst of all of it. He knows. You can only see today and everything before today. That's all you're capable of seeing. You don't know what's coming tomorrow or the day after that or the day after that. You don't know how things will be in the future. God does. He tells Habakkuk, and he tells you, I'm doing something about the problem. I am. I've got a plan. And it's so crazy of a plan. It's so counter to everything you know. Literally, you would not believe me if I told you. You would not believe me if I told you. Isaiah 55, I read it earlier in the service. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God works in the world in ways that you could never understand. His ways wouldn't even make sense to you if he explained them to you. But he explains them to Habakkuk. He says, verse 6, behold, I'm raising up. And Habakkuk's thinking, yes, God has a plan. He has a plan. He's raising up the military. That's what he's doing. They're going to save us. Maybe he's raising up the Avengers. They'll come defeat all the bad guys. Maybe he's raising up a squad of first responders. They'll protect us all. No, God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Wait, what? What? You may not know who the Chaldeans are, but Habakkuk does. He knows. It would be something like God saying to you, I'm going to raise up the Taliban to fix your problem. I'm going to raise up the Taliban to fix your problem. He calls them a bitter and hasty nation, verse 6. They are a bitter and hasty nation. He says, I'm raising them up. That's why you haven't seen anything yet, Habakkuk. It takes some time to raise them up. They've got to grow and mature and get ready. And Habakkuk's thinking... Uh, God, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but um, you know those are the bad guys, right? You know those are the enemies, right? You're going to raise up the bad guys to fix the problems in Israel? You know, God, I told you things could not be worse than they are, but you picked the one thing that could make this worse than it actually is. The Chaldeans are the worst kinds of people, worse even than ours, he's thinking. God is going to answer a lot of those questions in next week's text. So you've got to come back next week to get the answers to the question. But, but God is raising up a bitter and hasty nation, he tells Habakkuk. They are, verse 7, dreaded and fearsome. Everyone on earth knows how bad these people are. They are the people you don't want to meet in an alley even if you have a tank. You're going to lose. 
They horrify everyone. They've got weapons of mass destruction. CNN is always covering the terror they are causing in the world. Their justice and dignity goes forth from them, still in verse 7. They've got no decency. They've got no decency. They don't care about right and wrong. They don't care about morality. They don't care about obeying the laws of military. They don't fight fair. Verse 8, that their artillery will destroy. It says that their horses are like leopards. They've got the strongest military in the land, he tells Habakkuk. Their horses are leopards. Leopards obviously run real fast and devour their prey really quick. That's what their firepower does. Verse 9, they are fierce warriors. Their specialty is violence. They've got no thought of negotiating. They want to do nothing but destroy, pillage, and kill. They take everything and everyone they see captive. And verse 10, nothing can stop them. Even if you bring out your mightiest king, you can't stop them. You bring out all the best weaponry you've got, bring out your entire army, all your best generals and the greatest king to lead them, and they look at you and laugh. Is that all you got? Is that all you got? What are they going to do? Verse 11, they're going to come in so fast that you will barely know it. They're going to come in like wind, here one minute and gone the next. God tells Habakkuk they are going to sweep in and destroy Israel and bring complete destruction. And you can imagine, and we're going to see this next week as we get into verse 12 and beyond, but you can imagine what Habakkuk's thinking. Probably completely silent. Completely silent. That's not what I had in mind, God. That's not what I had in mind. I thought you were going to come in and purge all the wicked from the land and make Israel great again. I thought that's what you were going to do. I thought you were good and only wanted what is good. You're powerful and you can do everything. This is the best you can come up with? Like, God, I came up with five other plans. This is what you got? You're all powerful and you can do anything. We, we have a nation full of wicked people who are going to destroy us. With you, you, There's a nation full of wicked people, the Chaldeans, that, that are the one nation on the planet worse than us, and you're going to let them come in and destroy us. I thought you loved us. God is going to deal with those questions, remember, next week, but Habakkuk doesn't realize the problem with his argument. If you're going to purge all the wicked people from the land, where do you stop? Where do you stop? Most of us would think, well, all the people that are worse than me, that's who you purge from the land. All the people worse than me. The problem with that is there's someone down the road thinking the same thing, and you're in the group of worse people in their mind. Do you destroy all the people who are just less than 60% good? You know, like school, you get a 60 and above, you pass. You get below 60, you're out. Which one of us are in the 60% and above? None of you, and, and I included, are the standard of goodness. God is. God is the only holy one. He's the only one that is completely free of evil. He, he gave the world commandments to show how much they don't measure up to his holiness. Let's take the Ten Commandments alone. I promise if we looked at everything the Bible says about each of the Ten Commandments, every one of us has broken all ten of them, myself included. If you add in that whoever, Jesus says, whoever looks with lust has committed adultery and whoever hates someone has committed murder in their heart. That's what Jesus says. The point of the Ten Commandments are you've broken them all and you need a Savior. And then let's go to the sin of pride, arguably the worst sin in the Bible. I have been one of the most proud people I know in my life, and you have too. Time would fail to look at every commandment in the Bible and show how we are far below the line of 60% good. 
If God were to do what he's doing to Israel, to America, who of us would not deserve it? The fact is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not a comforting verse. We often say that verse is comfort, like, yeah, we're all good. We're, we're all at the same level. No, that's a terrifying verse. That's a terrifying verse. We do not measure up to God's holiness, therefore we deserve his wrath. That's what the rest of Romans 3 says after it says that. All of us deserve God to bring judgment on us, not deliverance. And we cannot question the way he does that which he does. Israel, just to give you the future, what happens here, Israel would go into exile. What God says he's going to do is what happens they would eventually get out of exile. They would spend 70 years in exile in Babylon. They would get out. God told them he'd get them out. He's going to send them there for 70 years. But they didn't learn their lesson. They didn't repent. Manasseh's ways remained in them. And they still don't understand that this time the Romans would rule them. And Jesus would come about 600 years later, and he would say something like what, Habak like what God says here to Habakkuk. And they wouldn't understand that either. Matthew 16. I think we're finished in Habakkuk, so you can turn to Matthew 16. Jesus says something very similar to his disciples that God says to, the Pharise to, to Habakkuk. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just like what happens with Habakkuk. Hey guys, I am going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not how it goes. That's not how the plan works. That is not it. The Messiah was going to have to die. These Romans ruling over them, they thought they've got to be defeated, and the Messiah is the one that's going to do that, so that can't happen. The Messiah cannot die. The Messiah will not be killed. He will destroy those Romans. That's what Peter and the disciples think. But God's ways are not their ways. The Romans are not the main problem for the disciples. Sin is the problem. There's a bigger enemy than Rome. It's sin. Habakkuk, there's a bigger problem than the ways of Manasseh. There's a bigger problem than the Chaldeans. Americans, there's a bigger problem than any bad thing you see out there. Every inch of the universe is corrupted by sin. That's why the abortion industry thrives. That's why the Chaldeans had their power. That's why the Romans had their reign. That's why even the sweetest old lady has a long, slow death. That's why these beautiful flowers here in front of me will wilt and die eventually. That's why stars in the universe burn out. You and I have all contributed to this. We are all, all of humanity has contributed to this. This is not a thing of just thinking that, you know, uh, there's all bad people out there in the world. If you're a sinner, you're part of the problem. You may be asking God to come and wipe away evil from the world, but you just need to ask yourself, what part of you is going to be left if he does? Because every fiber of your body is tainted with sin. If he came and wiped away all the evil in the world, who wouldn't go with it? So what does he do? 
What about that question from the college professor that we asked earlier? How can God be all-powerful and good at the same time in light of the fact that there's evil and suffering in the world? How? That question is presented like there's no possible way there could ever be an answer to it. But the problem is that college professor doesn't know another quality of God that has to be fit into that scenario. Love. Love. You see, that college professor is correct. An all-powerful God who is good has to destroy evil. He has to wipe away every bit of evil from the planet, or he's not powerful and not good. But that God is also loving. That God is also love. So he knows that by his very nature, he has to destroy evil, but he also loves those who are consumed by their evil, you and me. So God has to come up with a way to be all-powerful and good, as his nature is, and yet save us in his love. He has to find a way to make that work. So he finds a way to bring judgment on the world like it deserves, yet provide deliverance to people who, do, who deserve it. Jesus comes to earth as God in the flesh. He goes to the cross. On the cross, God carries out that judgment. On the cross, Jesus bears the judgment we all deserve. God comes and he answers you. God, wipe away evil. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. So God takes the curse and sin, you know, in Genesis 3, symbolized by thorns. He puts thorns on his son's head. He has his son nailed to a tree. Remember, Deuteronomy says anyone put on a tree is cursed. Jesus hangs on the cross, and God has taken the evil in us and placed it on his son as a sacrifice. Jesus endures the judgment we all deserve and we all deserve that for our sins. God carries out his righteous judgment on sin, but it is placed on the perfect sacrifice. Jesus dies, and our sin dies with him. The wickedness in the world dies with him. God finds a way to pour out judgment on sin, yet provide deliverance for sinners. Romans 3 says that he did this so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, that he might uphold his justice and yet justify at the same time. It's plain and simple. His ways are not our ways. His ways are far better. You and I never would have thought of that brilliance. We never would have come up with that. As he tells Habakkuk in verse 5, wonder and be astounded, Habakkuk, of what I'm about to do. If he had told you the plan before, you would not have believed him. We know that because he told the disciples right here. They didn't believe it. Do you know how we know that God is all-powerful and good? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God used all of his power to destroy sin by showing his great love and bearing sin in the place of sinners. Are you amazed? Maybe you say, but sin still isn't done away with. Look at the world. Yeah, there's still wickedness out there. You're right. And we'll talk about that next week. Habakkuk is wondering after God's first answer. That doesn't solve the problem. You're, you're just using wickedness to destroy wickedness. You're fighting fire with fire. When are you actually going to fix the problem? He says, I will. But here's the issue that had to be dealt with first. I had to purge the wickedness from my people before I could judge the rest of the world. Despite that all of Israel would be destroyed, there would still be faithful, uh, a faithful remnant preserved in exile. We see that from the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther, Jeremiah. There's faithful remnant in the people that were exiled. He says, I had to provide a way of deliverance before I brought final judgment. The death of Jesus on the cross covers the remnant. 
Jesus died so that anybody in the world could be saved, could become part of that remnant. But in the end, his blood covers those who, by faith in Jesus, know him. So I ask you, do you understand this? Do you really understand this? I'm not asking you if at some point you prayed a prayer at the front of a church. I'm not asking you if you're a member of this church. I'm not asking you if you have Christian values or if you believe Jesus was a real person in history or if you believe in God. I'm asking, have you surrendered? Have you surrendered? Have you come to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying in your place, bearing the judgment you deserved? In light of that, have you repented of your sins, that is, confessed them and made a 180-degree turn coming to hate your sin and placed your faith in the sacrifice that Jesus had on the cross for you? Not your good deeds, not your correct values, not your church attendance, the cross of Jesus Christ alone. If you haven't, will you surrender? If you have never become a Christian in this way, would you surrender? Would you pray and call out to him, I surrender I've done, I'm done trying to pay for my sins with my own goodness. I repent of my sins and I place my full trust in the cross of Jesus alone. The truth of the matter is, God, Habakkuk asked God, how long, O Lord? He probably asked that about 605 B.C. The answer in truth to how long, O Lord? About 640 years. In about 640 years, the Messiah would die for the sins of the world. And finally, God would begin the deliverance of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we ask how long, and we know the answer to that, it's Jesus. Lord, you have begun your work to do away with, to cleanse unrighteousness from the world. It's not complete yet. Lord, we know that when Jesus comes again is when it will be completed, as we'll talk about next week. But Lord, right now, you have cleansed us. You have forgiven us. If we confess with our mouth, uh, if, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. We praise you for that, Lord, because if you didn't do that, we would be destroyed with all of the other people that don't know you. And so, Lord, I pray that those here who know you would put their hope in Christ alone and that if there's any here that don't know you, they would find that hope and stop trusting in their own goodness. They have none, but trust in Christ alone the one pure, holy, good person. In Jesus' name, amen. Now's your time to respond. We're gonna sing nothing but the...